Good morning. Welcome into In Focus on News Radio KMAN. On this uh, Thursday morning, today we're going to be getting updates from Fort Riley and the Manhattan Housing Authority. A little later on, you'll hear a, a pre-taped interview with Colonel Will McCanny, the outgoing garrison commander there at Fort Riley. And we'll also uh, hear from three guests from MHA coming up around 9.30. But we start things off today uh, with the director of the Fort Riley Museum Complex, and his name is Dr. Robert Smith. Yeah, we call him Bob. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's great to be here. It's good to have you on again. Uh, Lots going on with the museum, but want to start first uh, because this is timely having you in here this week because uh, yesterday was a pretty significant day in the 1st Infantry Division's uh, history. It's the birth of the division back in 1917. And uh, like I always say, uh, it is the oldest continuously serving division in the United States Army. (laughs) So. Did you guys do anything uh, to s- signify that yesterday? Uh, well, we uh, posted some Facebook posts on that, and um, we're continually – right now we're continually uh, concentrating most of our efforts on getting those museums open. And uh, so – but uh, now the 1st Infantry Division, uh, just kind of a segue into the museum – the new museum is just going to be, for the uh, division, is going to be just incredible. Uh, we're, uh, actually, I was t- talking to uh, uh, Jim Sharp, one of our local First ID veterans, uh, just the other day. And uh, we were talking about uh, uh, his time. And uh, one, of the, uh, thing, one of the really cool exhibits we want to have in the um, museum that highlights his career uh, during, during the war. Now, I, I was trying to jog my memory. I, I know we did some media tours of that place uh, either last summer or maybe it was before that. I don't remember. But uh, the the renovations have been, I know, going on for quite some time. Uh, where are you guys at at the moment? Okay, right now we're into what's called the exhibit fabrication. And it's the last stage before we open the doors. And we have two firms, one in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, Formations, and another firm in Atlanta. So we're on sort of each side of the country here that are building our exhibits for us. These are modular exhibits. So sometime this summer, uh, there'll be some big uh, semis pulling into the museum parking lot, and we will be unloading these modular exhibits. I've learned a lot, though, uh, on exhibit construction and how it used to be Uh, For example, it used to be that you would paint a mural for a large diorama, and now it's all done by computer, and then it's brought in like wallpaper and uh, placed on the walls. And so it's it's fairly uh, fairly quick event, but uh, and and seeing it get done. But uh, we're waiting. The summer uh, should tell the tale, and we surely want to uh, keep the media, you know, involved in this because we've been closed for a considerable amount of time. I always joke, I, uh, when this process started, I had dark hair, and now I'm, I'm gray and <laughs> losing a lot of it. So, Well, and, and people just need to be patient. I, I know people are probably excited to come back at some point, and the, it, you be patient because it's going to be well worth the wait. You, you're right on that. It's going to be uh, just going to be incredible. Uh, one of the uh, standards that we uh, uh, looked at when we started the design and worked with the designers, and these are first-class uh, exhibit fabricators. I mean, they're very well-known uh, across the museum uh, uh, board. Uh, but uh, 
we want to keep the um, exhibits uh, in keeping with what you see at the World War I Museum, uh, what you see at the new remodeled Eisenhower, and uh, even uh, the, the great exhibits that we uh, have at the Discovery Center. So we want to keep that gold standard there in the, in the area. Yeah, we've got some great uh, facilities here in this region. It's nice to see that. Well, uh, of course, we also had D-Day this week, which is uh, significant uh, in in history, especially uh, with the involvement of the 1st Infantry Division. What, uh, as a military historian, stands out to you about that day? It was the largest amphibious invasion in the history of the world. I mean, uh, around 150,000 soldiers were on ships just for that, that first day. And uh, the amount of planning that went in is just amazing. One of the, uh, the interesting stories that uh, in the planning stages uh, that's not well known in how militaries plan this, these operations of this magnitude. And they needed uh, some topographical information about the different beaches that they were going to land on, Omaha and Utah Beach. And they found the topographical information through the French in the Paris Library, and they smuggled out the four volumes of topographical books uh, in the Paris Library and uh, through a kind of a cloak-and-dagger operation and got them back uh, to, the, uh, to, to Britain in order to, um, uh, to study the, the different topographical features. And the, the, they even sent submarines in at late at night, two-man submarines. And uh, they would get out and take samples off the beaches to know if the beaches were strong enough or uh, had enough uh, stability to take armored vehicles on. So the, um, the amount of planning and the operation, and I've got the numbers here, it was just staggering. Uh, there were 23,000 airborne troops that were dropped the night before. Mm. Uh, there were uh, 11 thousand landing craft that were used it was and they used uh the bombers here the number of bombers was just incredible it was like uh, five thousand different bombers with both the british uh bombing uh group and the uh, american eighth army so the amount of planning that went in and they had to keep this all secret and uh it was just an impossible task one poor british uh, uh, newspaper columnist. Uh, he wrote the crossword puzzles in the British, uh, the uh, London Times. And one of the uh, uh, code words was overlord. And it was used in a crossword puzzle. And he didn't know, it was just a word to him to put in the crossword puzzle. And British security came, knocked at his door, and locked him up for a couple of days until they realized that he didn't have any idea that this was a secret. <laughs> oh, my. Wow. But uh, the division, the 1st Division participated in the Omaha uh, Beach landing. Uh, the 16th Infantry came ashore. Uh, it was the toughest fight. It was the toughest fight of all of the beaches uh, because they had faced the German 352nd German Division, which was the only, was the only veteran German division uh, manning those five beaches. But... They won through, but at an incredible cost, almost 2,000 casualties in, in one day. Hmm. Well, and I, I imagine there's going to uh, be some – you probably already have some artifacts from that day uh, at the museum and probably 
people will be able to see those eventually. Again. Oh, we have one, and it's my favorite, and it's a little code book. It's a little signals book, and it's only about the size of my uh, two hands here. And you think on such a momentous day, uh, this signaler who came ashore with the assault unit would have this account of what had happened. And uh, the notation for that day changed socks. Wow. So, but it's really, it's an incredible piece. Well, and that's going to be uh, great to see there. Of course, you've got the U.S. Uh, Cavalry Museum there that's part of this as well. Um, what will people see there when it reopens? When, uh, what they see, will see there is a, uh, a history of the cavalry, the horse-mounted cavalry, from the Revolutionary War times. We actually have Revolutionary War items will, will be on display all the way up to the present day when the, the armored cavalry is now uh, armored cavalry or air cavalry. So the cavalry uh, will be well represented. And if I may add, today is the anniversary, June 9th, uh, 1863, of the largest cavalry battle that occurred in the Civil War, the Battle of Brandy Station. And uh, it was significant in that this was the uh, Union ca- The Union cavalry didn't do very well the first two years of the war. And, uh, but this was the time when the Union cavalry, the United States Army cavalry, came of age and were able to meet the, uh, the Confederate cavalry on a equal terms, and actually they won the battle. But the significance also there is uh, that it, is, uh, it was the start of the Gettysburg Campaign that culminates in July 3rd, uh, 1863. So we've got a lot of historical dates. Uh, my calendar's filling up at, <laughs> at work. Yeah, well, of course, and then uh, Independence Day just around the corner too and uh, all kinds of things. So... Well, the, it's exciting to see that these are going to be opening soon. You said the fall is when you're estimating? I, I'm believing that it will probably be in, in the fall. I'm going to say October, November in that time frame. But uh, we're, getting, we're getting really, really close. And uh, it's going to be well worth the wait. It really is. They're going to be – well, I'm prejudiced, though. I've been <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I believe that the, uh, the public and our soldiers and veterans, we're going to uh, – uh, tell the story of the 1st Infantry Division and also the U.S. Cavalry uh, uh, branch uh, very well. And so I'm looking forward to unlocking those doors and seeing people come into my buildings again. It's just such a storied history. And I remember when I went out there, uh, I believe it was last summer, and uh, saw the you know the Jeep that they have is on the second or third floor. I can't remember. It's on the second floor. Okay. Is that going to be – has it been put back together yet? I yes, it has. Okay. Yes, it has. That was an interesting uh, – our building was built in 1855, the Cavalry Museum. And so the stairs aren't the widest that you would expect. And we played around with different uh, options of maybe craning the thing through one of the open <laughs> windows. And it was finally decided that uh, we were going to just go down and do the basics, take it all apart, because Jeeps, Jeeps aren't that difficult to take apart right. and put back together. And take it all apart and bring it up in pieces and then uh, bring it upstairs and put it back together. And I think there was some episodes of the old TV MASH where, was it, uh, was it Klinger? That was a radar that was actually radar. shipping piece, pieces of Jeep home. So we took our, our, our notes from uh, Radar O'Reilly and thought, well, it can't be that difficult. There you go. Well, that's cool. Because I remember when I was there 
I think it was in like a several pieces at that point. And it was uh, really interesting to see that. I'm like, they're going to put this all together? That seems very difficult, but apparently not too not too hard. It's it's up on the second floor. It's uh, I, I look at it every morning when I come up to my office. I'm the only occupant in that building at, right now. Uh, and uh, I look at the Jeep and I, everything's all right. The Jeep's still here. Nobody took it out, so... All right. Well, that's that's cool that, that uh, everything's kind of coming to fruition. What would you uh, what would you expect uh, as people come back here? Are we going to see that like a big push for like a marketing campaign here for this, or, or does it get people back in here to get people? Well, what I'm doing is a speaking tour. I've been going around the different organizations and says. I'm from the Fort Riley Museums. Remember me? Uh, you know, we've been closed for a while, but guess what? And then I have my little, what I call my show and tell. I have my CAD drawings of what the museum's going to look like. And uh, I think uh, that there's going to be a rather large push uh, with the division PAO and the garrison PAO and to tell everyone, hey, the museums have been closed. It's been worth the wait. Please come out and see what we've done. It, it's a treasure. It certainly is a treasure of our, our region. I, I just spoke to somebody who's new to the area yesterday, and I said, well, what's what's good to do around here? And I, the museum is one of the places I mentioned to him off air. I said, you got to go check out the museum when it reopens because it's a fantastic uh, jewel to our community. So um, really hope people will come back and, and see see those again. And, and the history is so important. we got to keep telling that story. Well, my, uh, I have a number of colleagues that work at the Leavenworth Museum, and we always get into sort of a very friendly argument of who has the most history, and uh, I think I win. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> tend to agree with that, yes. All right, well, anything else before we wrap things up, Bob? Well, uh, there is one. Uh, we're coming up next week uh, with the birth of the United States Army, and I believe it's the 247th birthday. Uh, actually, was formed before... Our country was uh, 1775. It's when George Washington uh, rode, I said walked, no, he rode, uh, into uh, the Deutsche Heights outside of Boston and uh, took control of those uh, uh, colonial soldiers. And we have the United States Army from that, that beginning. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to believe four years from now we'll be celebrating the 250th uh, birthday. Isn't that crazy? 250th anniversary of the United States Army. Wow. Long, proud tradition, though. And, again, 1st Infantry Division, longest continuously serving division in the United States Army. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. We uh, Thank you for giving us an update here today, and we'll, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure, here very soon. Well, we look forward to you coming out and seeing us. All right. Soon. Sounds good. Stay Thank tuned. You. Thank you, Bob. Uh, more in focus continues in a moment. Colonel Will McCanny. We're going to hear from him next on News Radio KMAN. Good morning. Welcome into In Focus here on News Radio KMAN. Today we're uh, getting an opportunity to talk to the outgoing uh, Fort Riley Garrison Commander, uh, and his name is Colonel Will McCanny. He joins us in studio. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely glad to have you here and. Uh, so you'll be uh, exiting Fort Riley fairly soon, and as you near the end of your command, uh, what will be uh, some of your lasting impressions of your time here? Well, I appreciate that, and uh, it, it is uh, a bittersweet time to be thinking about about leaving um, command and, and leaving Fort Riley, and I've thought a lot about that. I think really one word comes to mind, I say, and that's it, it may sound a little corny, but home, 
home comes to mind. You know, there's really, we've been stationed a lot of places in our career, and this place has felt more like home than any other of our assignments. Um, and I think uh, really the people of these communities should take great pride in that. Lasting impression will be the terrific support that we get from the community around here, the whole Flint Hills region. Uh, Fort Riley is dependent on that support, the soldiers, the families, the civilians that work there. And uh, so for me, that's definitely the most lasting impression. Uh, I can't remember, before you came to Fort Riley, had you had you been out here before? No, I had never been stationed at Fort Riley before coming. Okay. So it's uh, this is a, probably a neat experience for you. Where, where's home to you again? Home is California. Okay. Very good. Well, it certainly is an interesting time here to serve at Fort Riley during the uh, height of the COVID pandemic, and I'm sure that was uh, uh, interesting. Can you talk about some of those challenges and what you're proud of in terms of how uh, Fort Riley and the Army handled uh, some of those challenges? Yeah, it was tough. Um, just last week, we said, or earlier this week, actually, we said goodbye to my command sergeant major, Command Sergeant Major Tim Spikert, and both he and I came into the job in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandem- pandemic. Uh, and it was a challenge for everybody, not just for us, but really for, for everybody on Fort Riley and all the communities around us. I think the biggest challenge was as a power projection platform, uh, one that is, uh, you know, our mission uh, for the Army is to fight and win the nation's wars. But for the 1st Infantry Division is to be ready to support the missions and objectives of our senior uh, civilian leaders. So we had to keep training. We had to keep we had to stay ready. Uh, so we couldn't stop you know, on Fort Riley. We couldn't stop training. We couldn't stop preparing soldiers and families for that mission. Um, So that was the biggest challenge, was figuring out ways to do that. And uh, I give a lot of of credit to our great Department of the Army civilians that uh, work on Fort Riley in uh, helping us figure out ways to do that, which they did. Uh, We kept things open. We kept uh, the train, all the training facilities open. We kept all of our schools open uh, with, in partnership with USD 475. We kept all of our daycare facilities, all of our support facilities open to support that mission. Uh, figuring out the ways to do that was the, big, was the big challenge, and we worked together to do that. So I'd be, I'm very proud that we were able to do that and continue that through the whole time of the global pandemic. Uh, there were challenges. The biggest challenges in that probably were keeping our staff motivated um, to, to continue and stay on the job. Um, many of them liked it, but it's always, it was difficult for all of us to work through the mitigation you know, measures, mm-hmm. masks and vaccines and, and those kinds of things. But uh, they all just got through it and helped us get through it. Well, what have been some of the highlights of your time here, would you say? Uh, I think probably the highlights for me, the community partnerships, uh, community partnerships with the Manhattan, Junction City, you know, but really all the uh, communities around the whole central Flint Hills region. Uh, it's, it's unique, Fort Riley, in that way. Many, many communities have um, terrific partner uh, cities outside their gates, or many uh, installations have terrific communities right outside their gates, but this, this one is unique. So for me, the highlight is the successes that we were able to accomplish, events, um, and uh, keeping our families taken care of through the last couple of years wouldn't have been possible without the partnerships that have been developed for many years before that. Anything you're, uh, that you're proudest of uh, during your time here at Fort Riley? Well, I'd say I'm most proud of the way that the soldiers and civilians of Fort Riley, uh, and especially U.S. Army Fort Garrison, uh, for U.S. U.S. Army 
garrison, Fort Riley, um, persevered their resilience through these last two years. Uh, they, may, they kept up their motivation. Uh, they kept their spirits up and uh, showed up for work every day with the same resilience and the same spirit that they had before. And that I'm seeing now as we're kind of on the other side of the pandemic, um, the excitement from all of them to be able to get back to doing the things that they love to do, um, you know, that we couldn't do over the last couple of years. Some of the great events on Fort Riley where we invite our community partners to come back on and, and see the beautiful historic Fort Riley. What have, uh, I guess, as far as being out here at Fort Riley, what's impressed you the most and uh, what you know, what have you found to be the, the best part about being stationed at Fort Riley? It's easy for me, the people, yeah. the people around here. I mean, that, that's, that's just it. You know, I, I grew up, like I said, in California, never been stationed here before. Um, but uh, I've been most impressed in, in, with uh, the people around here, around this whole area. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. Are, are, are Kansas people just friendlier than uh, people in California, per se? <laughs> well, you put me on the spot with a question <laughs> like that. I think it's just uh, there's a different uh, a different type of friendly. You know, I mean, I think it's it's the way that, that they embrace uh, Fort Riley a, as a part of the community, not something other, you know, that is there and that they just they work on Fort Riley or, or whatever it may be. Nope, they, they accept – the soldiers, the families, the civilians that work there as, as part of the community. Yep. I think that's what makes it different. Yep. I've recognized that, too, in my short time here in the area. So, All right. Uh, what are you going to miss the most uh, about being here? Uh, number one, that. We're going to miss the people. Um, my wife, Deidre, and I are starting to think about that, and I think uh, that's going to be the hardest part. It's going to be a diff- probably the most difficult assignment to leave, uh, mostly because of the, uh, the friendships that we've developed um, over the last couple of years. All right. Uh, as far as uh, things you'd say to the Flint Hills communities as you depart, Fort Riley? Thank you. Thank you for your continued support. Thank you for uh, understanding the challenges that our soldiers and families go through uh, with their mission and to accomplish that. And thank you for always being there um, when Fort Riley needs you. And again, uh, just highlight real quick the uh, July 12th will be the uh, change of command uh, taking place with uh, Colonel Michael Foote taking command. Have you had a chance to meet him yet? I have. I've had uh, a few discussions with uh, with Colonel Foote, and I can uh, assure everybody that they're getting a very experienced and good leader. Uh, he's excited about coming here. Um, like me, he's never been stationed at Fort Riley before, um, but he's got uh, got a long military career with with a diversity of assignments and he and his wife are very excited about coming here and taking for this opportunity all right so what uh what's next for you then so the army's sending uh sending us to northern command out of colorado springs um uh, which is not bad if we have to leave here right not too bad to go but uh but we're going to miss it here but i'm going to be the j-34 which is basically the chief of homeland defense for northcom okay well that's a that's a great area. I've never been to Colorado Springs, but I've I've been to parts of Colorado, and I, I know that's just a beautiful country out there. So we wish you well. Thank you. Uh, all right. Well, uh, appreciate you being here, and uh, uh, it's been wonderful getting to know you here. And uh, I know on behalf of the rest of the community, we, we thank you for your service. Thank you for the opportunity again, and thank you to everybody in the in the area for looking out for me and my family. Welcome back into In Focus on News Radio KMAN. We're going to shift gears now and talk Manhattan Housing Authority here as we do on the second Thursday of each month. 
And uh, Aaron Estabrook is joining us here, Executive Director. Good morning, good, sir. Good morning, Brandon. Good to talk to you again. You brought some guests with you today. Yeah. You want to introduce them? Yeah, so we have uh, two guests, and Dr. Kennedy Clark is also on the MHA. Uh, she's a commissioner for the, the Manhattan Housing Authority and also a so- assistant professor at uh, Kansas State University. All right, welcome. Good to talk to you here today. Thank you for having me. You bet. And uh, the other one? Yeah, Idris uh, Khalil. Idris has uh, b- uh, been on before, and he's uh, now got a new position that he's going to talk about a little bit, uh, working with Catholic Charities, working refugee re- support services, and how um, how things are going with the Afghans that have resettled in Manhattan. And um, we're just excited that just to have Idris part of all of uh, all of the activities going on around housing. All right. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Thank you, sir. So much. Thank you. All right. Well, let's start off first. Uh, uh, Aaron, uh, we're going to talk about uh, who is public housing for? That's always a good topic. <laughs> right. So um, the question, you know, people might might say, you know, what is who 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 is eligible for public housing? Right. And the short answer to that is is really it's just based on income, income qualified. Um, the longer answer, what does income qualified mean? Well, anyone that's making under 80% of the area median income, the AMI. And for Manhattan, that's about $43,000. Um, think about, you know, most of your entry-level teachers, a lot of your first responders, people all across our community and at the university um, that would be income eligible. Uh, that's really about $20 an hour. That's like, uh, uh, that's quite a bit of money. Um and someone making $20 an hour qualifies for public housing. So I kind of ask listeners out there, does that surprise you? Um, the math hasn't changed over the decades. We're still calculating 80% of the ma- of area median income the same way we always have. But we want to challenge listeners to, to kind of think about what, what does that difference in their uh, mind where does that come from? Is it is it because we carry a stigma or some kind of implicit bias towards terms like decent wages or public housing? Because um, MHA is aiming to push back on any any of the stigma that might exist to help improve how people navigate a housing market. Uh, there's housing challenges all across the United States. We're not just looking at uh, talking about Manhattan when we say housing market, but there's layers of implicit bias that has been baked into our system of procuring loans and, and getting into housing for over the last century. And Brandon, you've heard me talk about MLK. We worked mm-hmm. on getting uh, 17th Street renamed to MLK, and that goes back to uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to Ahern, uh, Ahern Fieldhouse uh, in 1968. Uh, shortly after that, the Fair Housing Act was passed, and we're going to touch on those topics here that uh, Dr. King kind of was alluding to, and that the 1968 Civil Rights Act was inspired by um, the Fair Housing Act, I should say, and it provides protections for everyone. And but this month, we're really going to focus in on two two populations specifically being around the ideas of celebrating Juneteenth, and that's a federal holiday, um, and also it's Pride Month, and that's another 
population that has has seen some challenges over the last century that we want to um, recognize and talk about. And who better to talk and introduce these topics than Dr. Clark? And we're so lucky to have her on our board. She has brought students from K-State that she teaches around uh, diversity and inclusion and these uh, social transformation studies. She's brought those students to Manhattan Housing Authority to t- teach and talk to our staff. It's just so informative. Whatever you think you know, you can always learn a little bit more. And that's what we hope to maybe touch on today. All right. Well, Dr. Clark, yeah, you're going to take it away. Uh, what, what, have, what have you learned here, I guess, uh, about um, homeownership and discrimination that people um, face even today? So, goodness. I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm trying to work through it. But um, even recently, the HUD secretary, Marsha Fudge, discussed the fact that people were still experiencing, specifically black people were being locked out of home ownership. Um, This is problematic. What we know is that 80% of black black people are likely to experience an 80% rate of denial when compared to their white counterparts. Now, we recognize that part of that can be explained by maybe black families having lower wages, but that doesn't account for all of it because even in cases where, even in situations where all of the things like credit, um, when when we're controlling for credit, we're controlling for income, we're controlling for time and job, we're still having disparities between black families and white families. With HUD, we actually have programs that can help with some of these disparities um, because what many people don't recognize is that there are HUD-based programs that can help with home ownership through public housing mechanisms. Is it pub- it's public? Yeah, well, public housing, but also Section 8, right? Section 8 and other, you know, first uh, FHA, diff- all the, the myriad of programs that HUD rolls out to get into home ownership um, putting that that emphasis on uh, prioritizing and pulling back those systemic challenges, um, I think, that ex- have existed. They're even looking at a special purpose, special purpose credit programs and making sure they're lawful and an important tool to expand credit and home ownership. All right. And this is, yeah, I mentioned this is a problem that's existed for some time and Hopefully, uh, we are making some progress on this, but uh, I see here that that it says even black Americans are more likely to carry student loan debt and have higher balances, which, uh, you know, that's just, uh, I I have a pretty high student balance myself, but it's just, it's horrible to think that, you know, this is a continuing saga here for folks, people experiencing this. Absolutely. And part of that comes from generational wealth. So Mm. when families pass away, family members pass away, they're able to then pass that money forward to the next generation. And when um, laws have hindered the ability to uh, accrue generational wealth, then you're more likely to have to start over every generation. Makes sense. Um, So things like community redlining have been detrimental to the black community. And that's basically where black and brown communities were listed as no-go points. And mortgage companies often wouldn't get loans for those communities. Um, similarly, today, we still see that people who once, like black people, redline communities still to be, 
tend to be a little bit more populated with black and brown people. And so the communities that were once green during the redlining, which were typically white communities, and they were had covenants that weren't didn't allow for them to sell to people of color. Those communities still tend to be mostly populated by white populations. Um, so we have those issues. We still also have major issues with pride. Uh, the LGBTQIA plus community continues to face insurmountable levels of discrimination when seeking housing or um, job opportunities. Um, many of them are still facing discrimination even within their families. And so... And forgive, uh, I don't know the law on this, but there are laws put in place, I think, to protect people of the LGBTQ community from being discriminated against. Absol right? Absolutely. And I think that's... We, we may as a society recognize um, it a little bit faster and easier amongst each other when we're talking about race and discrimination. And we seem to kind of forget a little bit of when we're talking about the LGBTQA plus community. And, um, but it's absolutely the same protection. Um, and there are ways to identify and make complaints to HUD. Um, it's, there are, it's protected under the Fair Housing Act, as we mentioned before. The Fair Housing Act protects uh, based on the sexual dis housing discrimination because of sex. Um, these things might be an example, like a realtor might refuse to show a house listed for sale to a potential buyer because the buyer is transgender. Like that is illegal. Um, but we don't necessarily see that as quickly and easily as we might um, with other types of discrimination. So it's really important to highlight that. It's, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of uh, information education out there about the rights and the protections for this community. And given that it's Pride you know, Month, we want to we make sure that everybody in Manhattan understands that those those protections exist under the Fair Housing Act. They need to be treated just like every other situation that is, is protected under the Fair Housing Act. And there's a whole list of these uh, types of questions. One, like, for example, uh, let's say a, a building manager refuses to authorize repairs to a unit because the tenant's uh, daughter, he saw her holding her hands with a girlfriend, and the manager explained that the teenage... Home, the teenager's uh, homosexual lifestyle, uh, that that tenant would need to make the repairs themselves. That is a Fair Housing Act claim. That's a discrimination because of who, because they were holding hands. And really the bottom line here is we want to provide housing. Nobody should be denied that basic right based on who they love or how they identify. Um, we need to get beyond that as a society, but it takes effort. It takes people like Dr. Clark teaching generations to, to understand that we are humans, uh, despite how we come out and what we decide to do. And we have these equal protections. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's so important to highlight that this month. And what's the first step if, if somebody is experiencing uh, discrimination? Uh, do they need to go to the law enforcement first or to find, find an attorney? Or what would you, what would you say? 
I one 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 thing for sure to do is go to uh, uh, Google HUD um, and the F H E O, which uh, your Fair Housing Equal Opportunity. There's an officer um, that represents the entire Great Plains region. Uh, they will they will take that complaint. There's an entire department built around this. So when you know when I was out in the city commission, we we had these discussions about uh, the human rights uh, commission being able to have some those complaints come in and be fielded. But there is a federal level for this too. Um, and if you want to get involved with housing, uh, you can go through HUD and directly to a HUD website, file a complaint with the the officer there, and they will investigate it. And it doesn't just pertain to public housing properties. It's any right. any housing um, that exists in the United States. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and uh, talk more MHA here in a moment. We'll bring Idris on the program as well. You're listening to In Focus on K-Man. We are back here on In Focus, News Radio K-Man. Manhattan Housing Authority, our... Uh, topic here as the uh, show winds down here towards the end, uh, we have uh, Aaron Estabrook, Executive Director. Uh, we have Dr. Kennedy Clark in here from the uh, Board of Directors and Idris Khalil, Catholic Charities, uh, Refugee Support Services Case Manager. New title for uh, Idris uh, since he last joined us. And uh, we uh, welcome you back here. You've got some updates uh, that you wanted to pass along today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, I have started working with uh, Calitech Charities uh, as a refugee support service manager. My main job is to provide uh, employability and stability program to, to, um, which covers like job placement, training, referral to, uh, referral to job opportunities, placement and follow-up, uh, English language training, transportation and interpretation during uh, appointment, we have also another um, uh, part, uh, which is wellness, uh, wellness program. Uh, it's a long-term case management and psychological support. The third one is cash and medical insu- insurance and medical screening support that we are providing to some individual here in Manhattan. Uh, the fourth one is support program, which is a legal support and citizenship in order to make sure that all these client that we have currently in Manhattan have their legal documentation and if they need any support in future so we can provide them this support. Currently and uh, in collaboration with MART, uh, almost uh, 119 Afghan allies are connected, uh, 71 are Afghan children, 40 are, 48 are adults, uh, all school uh, age kids are going to school. Many of the adults have begun working and some of are uh, in the hiring process. Uh, most of the Afghan men are going to uh, English language courses. Some of the Afghan ladies are also going. We are working closely with the uh, Manhattan Technical College to um, uh, start up campus class for Afghan ladies who is, uh, have problem going to the uh, college because of child care and uh, transportation issues. Uh, Kanza uh, in Manhattan doing a great job and they're uh, providing lots of support to our uh, Afghan families uh, from medical appointment up to interpretation. So all these things, they're doing great with us. Uh, luckily, Mart has officially recognized and they have their website. 
so i can uh, www.alliedwelcome.com is now official uh, organization that work in manhattan and the surrounding areas uh we have some issues also that we can talk about these but uh, for before going to that uh, uh, challenges i want to thank you, uh, thank all the shareholders that we are working with them the mart manhattan afghan resettlement team usd 383 schools kanza manhattan technical college and kanza workforce department so we are in great coordination and collaboration with all these organization in order to make sure that upon who are resettled in manhattan have a long term stability in terms of uh, financial and uh, social uh, aspective so all these they like uh, we are working with them and hopefully i'm very hopeful that uh, it will work and soon these afghan who are like uh, been here for almost some of the month a uh, few months have been a positive uh, stakeholder in this community yeah i'm sure there's been challenges i talked to chris boxberger yesterday at matc and mm-hmm. he brought up the fact that there's uh, folks taking the esl classes over there at matc and that i know that's important to you guys cuz uh, yeah a lot of folks want to get up communication is such a big thing and I was talking about this yesterday, but uh, yeah, just getting, being able to go to the grocery store and get things and talk to people, yeah. that, that's a challenge. Yeah, like it's situated like uh, lots of challenge. For, for example, you're going to a doctor, so you cannot, you have to have a, a translator with you. If you are going to grocery store, you mentioned before. And if you have a solved problem of your own children, like from school, they have got some assignment and you need to work with them. So all these, uh, fortunately, all these women are uh, keen and they are interested to learn English language. But the only problem that currently we have is the transportation facility. So we are working with them closely and uh, hopefully they can start off-campus classes for us and we will do, um, select a location for them with the collaboration of MART and uh, Manhattan Technical College. The second challenge that we have, like uh, we have some wonderful up one women there, they are keen and they are willing to work uh but they don't have uh, jobs right now we are looking for a job opportunity uh we have some afghans do we have uh, most of the afghan men have got their jobs and they are hired by um, several organization employers but we are still looking for um, to find a job for these afghans so these are the uh, two challenges that we have and uh, we are hopeful that we will overcome these challenges and these uh this is Aaron just as Idris was talking about that um uh, i think we're we're approaching the th- about 300 days since uh the ta- the fall of kabul and and the, the taliban takeover and that's uh, there's a countdown if anyone follows on social media from of how many days that women have been denied education in Afghanistan and especially higher education and just hearing Idris talk about the challenges of getting to MATC that's the barrier the car you know getting getting yeah. from one place to the other that's the challenges we're trying to deal with and overcome here um, and having that juxtapositioned uh, against the challenges as if you were in Afghanistan of not of just being denied that access and opportunity altogether is 
is really uh, striking as he's describing that. Wow. Well, hopefully people can uh, reach out. Uh, they're hearing this for the first time. Uh, MART, again, stands for Manhattan Afghan Resettlement Team. And uh, you can go to allieswelcome.com and see how you can help out in any way. Um, donations are always good. Um, yeah. Uh, we've we've got uh, – it's just we're entering a new phase. we got a new uh, – got a 100, 120 Afghans in our community that are, are really – you know, becoming part of the fabric yeah. and we're excited to see the future and the growth through the summer. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll bring you back here again sometime, Idris. Uh, thank you so much. For having you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank, thank you, you. Uh, Dr. Clark and uh, also to uh, Aaron Esterbrook. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. It's going to wrap up our program here today. Tomorrow, uh, be sure to stay tuned. The whole hour is going to be dedicated to Juneteenth. We've got uh, the committee members coming in. Uh, Debbie Nuss is part of that. Dave Baker and Betty O will be here as well.